detected. Shield up. Signatures detected. Context Southeast Command. What's happening? Context Southeast Command. Delay that order. Context Southeast Command. This is the captain. Context Southeast Command. Get out of my chair. 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 We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to the greatest discovery. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. I was worried I was like low energy at the beginning of that, so I tried to add energy, and I think it made, I think I just went faster toward the end of my... <laughs> you know, sometimes going faster can be very unpleasant for the other person, Ben. Yeah, yeah. But I'd let you know if it was too fast. You tell me what feels good. <laughs> yeah. I... We try to we try to make John Roderick record the intros for Friendly Fire as much as possible. But you mean the hit war movie podcast that we do? Yeah. Occasionally, you or I will record those intros, and yeah, sometimes it's because it's like Thursday at eight a.m. because we found out that John didn't send it to Rob last night. Uh huh. And so I'll get up and be like, okay, well, I'll I'll record this one, and I'll record it, and and then like go into the kitchen and get my first cup of coffee, mm-hmm. and then Rob will send the finalized episode, and I'll listen to it, and I'll be like, 1943 is a big year for the production of motion picture film. <laughs> oh man, I really need to redo this. This is bad. Do you feel like fatigue is comparable by? by like time of day like do you feel like tired in the morning is worse or better than the tired of an evening no we we have observed that we get real different energy out of each other depending on what time of day we record and absolutely i think we both prefer our energy at night yeah but our wives prefer us to do our work during work hours so sure well, that's becoming less and less of a priority in my household. <laughs> it feels like it's becoming more and more of one in mine because we did a late night record this week and I got major stink eye over it. But in the way that you were describing, the fatigue of an evening uh, doesn't also accompany like sluggish brain. I feel like my brain is pretty sharp in the evening for as tired as I may be in a way that in the morning, it takes a long time for me to get into gear. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Friendly Fire is is such a tragedy. You know, you get, <laughs> you get us recording that show in the morning most times and uh, yeah. you're not getting your best Adam. Uh, you hear stand-up comedians describe like doing a show when it's still light outside. Mm. As being a particularly hateful thing to have to do, trying to make people laugh in the daytime is is a challenge. Also, uh, like outside comedy show has a different vibe that, I don't know, there's something about the energy of a dark room with a low ceiling, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, what we're doing is barely comparable to comedy per se but only in the dark room low ceiling sense do i feel like what we're doing is comedy (laughs) well uh we have a uh kind of an unusual break in format today we're not reviewing a specific thing but a a collection of things we're reviewing a specific person right we're gonna review him at the end aren't we (laughs) Yeah, uh, we, we've gone back into the archives. We kind of broke up the work, so uh, but but we're trying to give kind of a survey of the data story. And I think you kind of picked the like one of the earliest 
data-centric episodes and the what I would call the last data-centric episode. And I, I got four episodes uh, across the middle of that of that run. So you watched Data Lore. I did. And then yeah. I, I watched Measure of a Man, The Offspring, and Decent Part 1 and 2. <laughs> wow. You watched a lot. I watched a lot. And then you watched Nemesis. Uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you mentioned this. On our last episode, uh, this, for both of us, was the first time we had gone back to watch TNG episodes since since recording them for the Greatest Gen program. Yeah, I think I look at TNG a lot because when I'm editing an episode of The Greatest Generation, I sure. will often go find a drop or, or something to highlight a point we're making in an old episode of TNG. And revisiting it from an aesthetic standpoint did not... Uh, did not surprise me much, but um, I think uh, going back and living in that writing was really a treat. And it is, it's truly like my happy place of television shows. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was really nice. That sense of the writing cuts both ways because by watching both a season one episode of TNG and the final Star Trek The Next Generation film, Nemesis. The similarities in the writing were, I think, one of the reasons why that last film wasn't a fan favorite. Hmm. You know, I think it kind of it kind of rotted on the vine a little bit. You're saying it kind of they kind of used similar themes in in the film and didn't expand on them enough. Similar themes, similar feeling, similar stakes. Yeah, even I found. Measure of a man to be really the high watermark for my uh, my review. Yeah, and um, it's just such a such an incredible episode from a performance standpoint. But it's also very writerly. Like there's there are flourishes in the language that are light years beyond stuff that we get in modern television, which is a shame. I think that. I don't think that the the writers now are any less talented than the writers then, but the pace is so much more feverish in modern television that you can't have, you know, scenes don't last long enough for anybody to say anything of of great mm. insight, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean there's a there's something about the pace of the episode that I saw was from 88 like Felt pretty contemporary in terms of how fast things clipped along. Really? That felt good. I I mean, it, it was not a, a slow episode, the data lore episode, I mean. Yeah. I mean, like the themes that we talk about in Star Trek Picard, W slash R slash data are, you know, about self-propagation, the idea of data having lineage, which is uh, something they chewed on a little bit in The Offspring but also in, in Measure of a Man. Uh, I was thinking about data lore and the fact that data is a twin is uh, something that I hadn't really connected with the idea that all of the androids in Star Trek Picard are twins. Yeah. Data lore is such a foundational episode in a lot of ways. It, it really packs in the trivia about him. Totally. In a fun way during like what you could really call a Q&A session between... Lore and data. I think <laughs> one of the things that that stuck out to me about the ep was 
was we get a glimpse of Data's career in a way that kind of brings up some uncomfortable questions about, and this is one of the things I wanted to pose to you, like as we talk about Data and his career and his life, whether or not it was a good life. Because Hmm. like the big takeaway I have, you know, after seeing Data Lore and Nemesis was like, I, I think we can accept because Data accepts that when he's finally uh, terminated at the end of Picard season one, he is satisfied with his resolution as a life. Yeah. But just adding everything up, Laura and Data have this conversation. The main tension between them is that is that Laura is like, you are so much better than all these people. <laughs> Why do you slum it with them? Like, Like, where is your ambition? And when Data... And Laura talk about Data's career, and Data's like, yeah, you know, you could be a Starfleet officer. You just need four years at the academy, uh, 12 years as a lieutenant, and then you get placed on the Enterprise. <laughs> and when I heard that that job history for him, on the one hand, it makes sense, because if you're dealing with someone who could live forever, like, what's 12 years? Right. But if you aren't sure about that, and your Starfleet, are you not squandering one of the great people slash resources you've ever had? <laughs> and then where does that tension between, like, I think this is a very measure of a man related question too. Like, to the extent that a company possesses its employee in that same way, like by the Federation making Data a lieutenant for 12 years... What a fucking waste that feels like. Yeah. It's funny. Like, I've, I've always thought that Data was a little underwritten in the first season, and they did a lot of, like, him not knowing a basic word and then, you know, turning slightly slightly to the left and saying accessing while he laboriously defines that word right. for everyone that's standing around. And a really strange credulity that he would be that new to as many ideas as he claims to be if he's been a working Starfleet officer for 15 years and around human humans for almost 20. Right. I have found that humans often use small talk during awkward moments. Another thing I think about all the time is I just rewatched the uh, the MCU films as a as a quarantine project. All 26 of them? Yeah, yeah. And I just, you know, I took them down and in like half hour chunks in between things. And I was struck by how little it holds together. Like there's some impressive story arc stuff to be sure, but like a lot of it is internally self-contradictory. You know, there'll be one movie where I'll be like, you'll be like, this hero is basically unkillable and there's no force in the universe that can stop it. And then the next movie, they will posit some new force in the universe that can stop everything. And you never really get to see any of that stuff get tested against itself. And, you know, they solve the problems uh, that they set up meticulously over the 25 films with a super shaky time travel Mm -hmm. (laughs) explanation. And so, like, there's something, like, very satisfying about about those films. And I, I think that their, like, popularity is both calculated but also deserved in some ways but like this is a show that didn't have a cinematic universe plan going in 
And little things like I wasn't a lieutenant for 12 years feel like something that a writer uh, wrote in. And because there wasn't like a, you know, there's somebody there's somebody that works at Lucasfilm whose job is to like know all of the all of the lore and know the the like rules of the universe and make sure that they're not putting stuff out that undercuts the meaning of a previous thing. And like, I think. Uh, the the new Star Wars trilogy is an example of a film series that is like so saddled by the weight of the lore of previous films that it can't tell interesting stories anymore. And uh, and I wonder if like because that's a Star Trek Nemesis problem and not a Data Lore problem, right? Though, yeah, interestingly, because Data Lore is still working it out. It's still blue sky visioneering what Data could be. Yeah. at that point. And I think getting stuff wrong early on like that is forgivable and interesting. Gene Roddenberry was one of the writers of the teleplay, though. And, and like, who better than him would know how crucial it is to consider all this <laughs> stuff when you're when you're breaking a character? Right. But I don't think it, I don't think that they thought that way then. Yeah. Like, I think that I think that like Star Trek gave the world uh, the idea of a continuous universe as much as any other kind of franchise of of creative work and i think that like because they were kind of inventing it as they went i can't imagine that they could have planned well enough for for something like that yeah yeah that's weird anything leap out at you about the data lore episode that has implications for Data's final performance in Star Trek Picard. I misremembered that this episode was in season one. So I was like, I was like flipping through Netflix in the middle seasons. <laughs> like, where is this thing? Like I, I kept going back and back and back. And I was like, wow, this is the 13th episode of the show. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's very clear how interested the creators were in making Data a main character and concerns about him to the four. Yeah. I liked how curious everyone was about him and his mythology. And I liked the, the tension between that and his relative incuriosity about himself. Like, because this is a theme about him that is, that continues throughout his entire life is that, uh, data is interested in everything almost equally. And he does not choose uh, to be interested about himself to the exclusion of anything else. Yeah. And that was a fun tension to see on display in the ep. I think it was nice to be reminded of of like the two essential priorities that he's always had, which was like the obvious one is to be more human was 1A. Yeah. But 1B is to find someone like himself. Right. And that has always been something on his mind. And he was so happy to have the opportunity to to have a brother or to encounter someone who knew what it was like to have the challenges that he has right. going through the world. That second bell seems like one that they didn't ring nearly as much as the first. Mm-hmm. Like the loneliness, the essential loneliness of Data and how the second is related to the first. One of the greatest things about being a human is like the bonds that you form with other people and to what extent that that had to feel impossible because no one could truly know right. data. 
the stuff about lore in Descent Parts 1 and 2 uh, is very related to that. He's found the sub-matrix that Hugh went back to and infected with this idea of individuality, and he's now, like, reworking those Borgs into... And, like, they use the phrase, like, he's remaking them in, in his own image. So, <laughs> it, like... The implication of that in the episode is that he's making like an army of psychopathic Borgs that are gonna help him lay waste to the galaxy or whatever. But it's also like just, there's there's like a tragic element to that, which is like these are like the only creatures that Lore can relate to because right. he has such a bad relationship with his brother. Data is kind of a a cafeteria android, though, (laughs) with what he decides to prioritize in his journey to become human. Because, Mm -hmm. like, one of the things that really stuck out to me after after Data Lore was, like, he kills his brother at the end of that. (laughs) And he is totally uninterested in death in that moment in a way that becomes uh, an obsession in his final moments, right? Yeah, they just don't have that stuff worked out as much. Like, when you get to measure of a man, part of how they defend his personhood is by pulling out the Tasha Yar memorial hologram, and mm-hmm. he admits to the courtroom that, that they got down. And, you know, you get you cut around the room to Riker going like, mm, and Philippa Louvois, you know, putting a, putting a finger to her lip, like, file that away for... <laughs> For later. <laughs> I mean, that's another example of things that, that Data did once, yeah. curiously. Like, he, he did it one time. And if you were a student of humanity, is that sufficient? I don't think it is. They never really imply that he gets down with his girlfriend in that episode where he has a special lady friend, right? No, uh, and nor does he get down with the Borg Queen, even though that is sort of a, a promise that is made to him. I would say that uh, that blowing on his forearm rises to the level of, like, first base, probably, right? Hmm. Uh, one thing I noticed, both Measure of a Man and Descent Part 1 start with poker scenes. Hmm. Measure of a Man is the one that we use heavily for our, uh, our card drop. Time to pluck a pigeon. You know, like, the the upshot of that is Data has read books about the rules of poker, but he's actually never played before then. So this is him learning that there are, like, sociological elements that he did not consider sufficiently in in reading the the rules of the game. And, and that, you know, and, and Riker bluffs him and wins the, wins the hand. You know, he, he cites that later in a conversation with Maddox. Um, in Descent Part 1, it's the poker game with, like, Isaac Newton and Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein. <laughs> right. And uh, it's, a, like, a little bit more of just a bit. But I think that uh, it's interesting that that theme kind of came up for Data again and again. Like, it's a particularly interesting thing for Data to play poker. Yeah, because it's the most nuanced of games. It's the game that most has to do with personality in addition to strategy i mean there's a reason why computers play chess and computers don't play poker (laughs) generally yeah another theme i noticed is that in both measure of a man and the offspring guinan plays a big role she's the kind of person that picard 
leans on for advice about how do I how do I counteract this argument that data is the property of Starfleet and not an individual with his own rights and freedom. And she makes a case that if he is treated as his property, like anyone, any Android made in his image will be treated as property subsequently. And then you're talking about a race of slaves. If, if you consider them sentient, then you have to consider them to be slaves. And I didn't remember how much Measure of a Man really like cut that off at the pass. Like the idea mm -hmm. that a slave race could be created. And what came back to me was remembering that in the, especially in the book about uh, the, the Star Trek Picard novel that we both read, but then, you know, implied and, and discussed a little bit in the actual series, Picard was kind of like part of the impetus for making the, uh, the synths. He was, uh, That's he, right. he was like the one arguing, like, we need a, we need a workforce that can put these, ships together fast enough to save all the Romulans. And the book is at great pains to say that they are definitely not sentient. But Measure of a Man is an episode about how tricky it is to define sentience. It's interesting, like the uh, all the parallels between Noonie and Soong and, and Bruce Maddox, mm -hmm. like the idea that, that Soong was a, a failed cyberneticist who like exiled himself to go make data and lore and the rest and yeah. that is like exactly the playbook that that bruce <laughs> did in in his career totally yeah this is exceedingly difficult bruce maddox is such an asshole it made me wish that they'd had him do more stuff in star trek colin picard as a recurring character or just like give him an episode where he actually has a lot to do because he kind of like makes the deal with the with the criminal lady in planet vegas and then gets killed like not that long after they find him and he's knocked out for a lot of that too right yeah i think as we were watching star trek picard we were a little bit mystified at at the bruce maddox usage as a character yeah i mean this is a show that most definitely wanted to make picard the main character and and give Brent Spiner a major role, yeah, to the exclusion of of all other potentially interesting ideas. Right. I rewatched Nemesis right before we watched Star Trek Picard, mm -hmm. and then the death of Data is is such a a powerful theme in Star Trek Picard. But I don't feel like it made that big an impression on me because it happens late enough at the movie that I was like, ugh, this movie, I can't fucking stand it. <laughs> I hadn't seen the movie since seeing it the one time in the theater. Was it a was it a multiple rewatch for you ever? I don't think I even saw it in the theater. I think I saw it on DVD when it came out for home video, and then I hadn't seen it since then. When I started it up, I, I was like, well, there's no way it's going to be as bad as I remember. <laughs> and uh, it really lived up to what I remembered. <laughs> I think, and, and Data's death maybe is the, is the central example of that. You could tell that the film like thought of itself in a way where like this is the climax. This is this is going to be the emotional payoff to everything that came before. This is the grand send off for this character that is kind of like like from a television and film production standpoint, Data is a 
is a real problem because the actor that plays him is going to age over time and it won't make mm-hmm. sense. It was just a dream. It wasn't real. I just never felt like like it was earned and and like to a greater extent, like thinking about that film and then the big layoff and then w- when we hear they're going to do Star Trek Picard, the idea of writing that story and character wrong had to loom so large. Yeah. Like when the credits rolled on Nemesis, I I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe that that was the last film that they did and I couldn't believe that that's how Data went out and I couldn't believe how hollow the whole thing felt. We've got Troy crying in, into Riker's chest over his death and I just like, I felt nothing. Wow. <laughs> that's not how that scene was supposed to work. It's that... Jerry Seinfeld thing of I'm I'm like one of the best stand-up comedians currently living and I never know if a joke is going to be funny until I try it on stage in front of an audience. This is a a production team and a cast that have made hundreds of hours of entertainment together and to put it all on the line for a storyline like that and miss is so fucking devastating, but it happens. Yeah, it happens and it happened and it, you know... I think uh, we talked a lot about how much of a miracle it felt to get Picard as a character back in the Picard series. But in retrospect, I kind of feel like like franchises like these are going to live forever and studios are always going to try to reboot or reimagine these legacy properties. And I think maybe we shouldn't have been surprised at the idea <laughs> of of Picard happening, given right. what happened in that last film. It's a weird effect of like failing so utterly that you can only go up from there. <laughs> the The series was always going to be better than that last film. That ser- the series is like set up to succeed. Yeah. That's such a weird uh, leverage on a person when making a decision about whether or not to do a project. Like Patrick Stewart famously was like, never going to do a Star Trek project again. He that was that was in the past, but I think I think it is very it's a very natural instinct to try to do a thing that fixes a past wrong. Yeah. Either personally or professionally. <laughs> One thing I thought a lot about uh watching these is how many indignities data is subjected to like having to defend in court his right to not be disassembled by bruce maddox when -hmm. he has lol in the offspring you know picard's first reaction is basically like face palm like you didn't ask permission to do this and then an admiral comes who's even more stridently like you don't have any right to like to create a to create another android and i think it's that slavery theme kind of coming back up like that if he has property then then it kind of compromises the entire moral self-image of the federation but also if he's not like it's very very challenging for them to imagine a way to like integrate a species like his into their into their society there's such an interesting scene in Data Lore where, well, there's there's a couple of them, where uh, they recover Lore's body, you know, like the butt piece and the <laughs> arms piece and the head, like they're <laughs> yeah. they're trying to put them together. And Argyle, it was so fun to see Argyle again. 
he's like, you know, it would be cool if we could... And then he kind of trails off and it's Crusher that's got to complete a sentence. Like, you know, we got to use your body to as a template for putting this one together. There's like a discomfort in a scene like that. And also later when like there's a McLaughlin group where Jordy and Riker and Data and Picard are talking over what the plan is. And they're like stammering and they can't figure out how to refer to him. And there's like some interesting like pronoun confusion with lore and data and like Mm -hmm. a stated preference that data has which i found really interesting that like in a lot of ways a person teaches you how to treat them and data taught everyone how to treat him and in some ways that's good in some ways that's bad it's bad in the ways that you're describing because I think people openly made fun of him a lot <laughs> because they knew that they couldn't hurt his feelings. Right. I think that's real. Like there are people in the world that have feelings that are hard to hurt. And mm-hmm. I think that you do observe them getting made fun of more. And that feels like it comes from a disrespectful place sometimes. Oh, I mean, t- to use us as an example... Uh, you and I are bashing each other's kneecaps uh, every hour of every show that we've ever done. But the moment someone comes into our comments to do the same to you, like I, I can't stand it or to me, like, right. It's, we have a relationship and you're not in on that particular joke. And so like combining that with the grief that is felt at the end of Nemesis, I thought was an interesting yeah. difference too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and and especially that season one of Picard where it's it's clear that Picard's the one that feels that loss the most. Really? <laughs> like Picard excuses himself and goes to his ready room after learning Data died. The very last moment, one of the last moments that Picard has is talking to B4 about the life of Data. Never at any point does he appear to be grieving Hmm. his friend in the way that we understand him to be 20 years later. It feels a bit retconny. Yeah, it'd be pretty brutal to end a movie on on Picard just crying his eyes out, though. (laughs) I mean, do you think Picard sealed off that part of him after, uh, after his nephew died in the fire? Like you have your one big cry and then that's it. Yeah, we're in movie timeline, so he's he's cauterized himself. But I mean, I th- I think he also does a little bit of addressing that in Star Trek Picard, like talking about how he's basically just been like existing for a long time, and he's got the regrets with the failed rescue attempt of the Romulans and the other regrets as well. It seems like a cocktail that is mixed with a fair amount of uh, survivor's guilt too, right? Yeah. You hate to see him like that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I tried so hard. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't good enough. What was your favorite part of uh, of re-watching some some data stuff? Uh, Like you, first season TNG is a nice warm bubble bath of nostalgia. I mean, you and I both know the great John Hodgman has taught us that nostalgia is a toxic feeling. Yeah. 
Like, uh, it does no one any good. But I think television nostalgia is different. <laughs> it's not even that it's nostalgia. I just wish they would make TV shows that were slow and dorky like TNG was, you know, because I'm, I'm yeah. a slow dork. That's you. <laughs> when, when Brent Spiner's got to play to himself. Yeah. You know, you expect the lines not to line up <laughs> symmetrically. <laughs> yeah. You expect to see some of the seams. On production, yeah. But I thought uh, I thought the show held together technically far better than I thought it would, and that was fun. And also, like Brent Spiner's a really good actor, and I and I wonder to what extent, like, you think you have a good actor before this episode, and I, then I think you know you have one after this. Totally. Like you, you see that lore gear in him. It makes me wonder how, like. Uh, seductive the idea of more lore might have been like i know i know know lore comes back a handful of times but like to really bring him back often as the heavy or to make lore uh, a movie enemy i mean clearly brent spiner had like aspirations of you know elevating his character into second bill and to being a a story creator like i wonder i wonder if there was any consideration of a lore storyline because it it is an undone thread to the degree that we were guessing about his appearance in star trek picard right uh lore is a fascinating character and i think like the subtle ways that lore is different from data are where that fascination lies for me like it's not a totally different gear it's like a it's like half a shade off of off of normal and he does such a great job with that. Do you feel like Lore's evil is nature or nurture? I think it's partly nurture, but I think partly it's that he genuinely doesn't give a shit about how other people feel. Mm-hmm. And like that sociopathy can be like you can parent around that or whatever. Like I know you don't care, but everyone else does. So you need to like, like to behave in society. I think there are like... There are people that have like genuine like sociopathy disorders walking around not being monsters, you know, like they're, yeah, they're depicted as movie monsters all the time because it's very interesting for the rest of us to imagine what if I didn't care what anybody else thought. Mm -hmm. Like, I think most sociopaths are not like sticking knives in people's windpipes just because they can. They're just thinking about it all the time. All. (laughs) I think that like the other thing that distinguishes them is that Data is so like optimistic and curious. He doesn't have a lot of evidence to show that he will be able to be more human-like, especially if when he starts TNG, he's 20 years into his career. (laughs) That's so interesting. Like the project of becoming more human was a failure. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the thing I loved the most about that last episode of Star Trek Picard was him saying like the thing that he could never see was that part of being human is knowing that it's going to end. Like that's a Mm -hmm. necessary condition of humanity uh, in a certain way of thinking about it. And like they somehow made like death uh, an element of his optimism in that in that last episode. Yeah. And that is that's screenwriting on hard mode for sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm really glad we got to do this, man. I'm uh, this was your suggestion, and I thought it was a really worthwhile project. And uh, I don't know if uh, anyone listening has watched Measure of a Man recently, but uh, it was so fun to go back and rewatch. There's 
just so much great shit in Measure of a Man. It's like, <laughs> it's probably recency bias, but I was like, man, this is like a top five episode of all Star Trek. It's so fucking good. Yeah, it is. Made me realize we need a Philip Louvois drop for episodes of The Greatest Generation where we uh, land on that square and have to argue vehemently, you know? Yeah, we got to do that. The courtroom is the crucible where you burn away irrelevancy, Adam. (laughs) Uh, I've got kind of a summary question at the end. Did this exercise make you like or appreciate Star Trek Picard season one more, less, or about the same? You know, there are things that I I hadn't put together about Star Trek Picard season one, like the, the poker game at the beginning makes me think it is very like self-consciously a canonical data story in addition to being a Picard story. And like, I think that Brent Spiner finally successfully made it to second bill in that respect. I thought Brent Spiner's performance was great. I mean, I, I know that we both have a lot of misgivings about how Nemesis goes down. I think there's some good stuff in Nemesis too. I don't think it's a total trash fire, but um, but I think that from a sending the character off in style standpoint, I'm really glad we got a second run at that because I think Star Trek Picard did a great job with that. And yeah, I think it's an uneven, imperfect first season, but uh, overall a really worthy effort. And it was fun to re-examine it through the lens of data. How about you? I really liked imagining just being given the project of Picard season one and going like, where would you go if you could? <laughs> and considering that like Nemesis is the place where you start, the place where you have to start right. functionally mm-hmm. and thinking about what things you keep and what things you throw out. And I think you can get to Picard season one by watching all of TNG, the last 10 minutes of Nemesis and my feelings about Nemesis are are darker than yours. I think it's a real low point in the franchise, and I was I was shocked at just how low it got. I mean, given the the tremendous resources brought to bear, like like it it looks great. It's it's got the big budget. It has Tom Hardy in it. <laughs> they brought back Guinan and Will Wheaton. I mean, there's some promising stuff there. Yeah, but it is a it's a warning for all of those things as well. Like, you need more than just the ingredients. And then you set them all on fire. <laughs> you need an interesting idea, and it's it's overcooked Wrath of Khan derivations, you know? Yeah. One thing that's interesting about Nemesis is that, like, reintroduction of Remus as the sister planet of Romulus. And mm-hmm. I thought that that was, like, original to that film but when we went back and rewatched the tos episode that introduced the romulans it's in there yeah and that's one of like it shouldn't have been such a surprise that the romulans were a main element to that first season after seeing nemesis totally it's all right there or the the xbs like finding a way to to stitch romulans and xbs together Maybe the like single cleverest thing that they did with season one of Star Trek Picard. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. Well, do you want to see if we have any priority one messages in our inbox, Adam? I'm headed there right now. 
Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Adam, we have a couple of P1s here. The first one is from Free Trader Beowulf, and it's to anyone. It goes like this. This is Free Trader Beowulf calling anyone. Mayday, mayday, we are under attack. Main drive is gone. Turret number one, not responding. Mayday, losing cabin pressure fast. Calling anyone. Please help. This is Free Trader Beowulf. Mayday. Free Trader Beowulf. Do you think that's the name of the ship, or is that the name of the captain of a ship? I just googled Free Trader Beowulf, Uh and uh, it appears to be related to a show called The Magicians. Okay. On sci-fi. Is this branded content we were just made to read? What is this? (laughs) I don't know. They seem like uh, some some moody magicians from the photos that I'm seeing in my in my image search. Huh. I was just worried it was going to be some like weird alt right thing. So I'm glad it's a I'm glad it's a TV show. I'm I'm both generally and specifically supportive of anyone who wants to purchase a priority one message. I, I would never discourage anyone from from giving us this kind of I don't know what this is. Are, are like are we supposed to look this up? Is this a is this a bunch of clues with a with a treasure at the end? I think you may be wrong, Adam. I have I have some information here that it's part of a an RPG called Traveler with two L's. A Beowulf class free trader is one of many standard two hundred ton free trader designs known to charted space. Hmm. Anyways, I'm sorry that uh, whoever was in that spaceship probably asphyxiated while we were Googling what it was. (laughs) You know what? This is why we'd make uh, terrible captains or or commanders of our own ship, because we'd be be scrutinizing the message and who it might be from. Kobayashi Maru? What the fuck is that? Hold on. (laughs) I I hear you about the Klingon ships, but before we get to that, I want to know what a Kobayashi Maru is. Uh, ben, our second priority one message is from Ginger. It's to Ben, Adam, and Rob. Hey, he's the producer of the show. Message goes like this. While I was stuck at home in April, I decided to enjoy my free month of CBSL access. Nice. I spent the month binging Picard and Discovery, as well as every episode of The Greatest Discovery. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and making a challenging time more enjoyable. You guys have even convinced me the TOS episodes can be fun to watch. <laughs> Hey, that's great to hear, Ginger. I happen to be drinking a ginger ale right now. What a coincidence. That free month? I wonder if they picked up a lot of viewers. Yeah. I think that was a good strategy by them. I wish they'd give us like a promo code and pay to advertise on our program. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they're interested in any kind of association with us. We give them enough free mentions anyways. (laughs) Well, if you'd like to uh, fill the whole... Uh, in our advertising uh, income left by the lack of CBS All Access ads, head to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message. And we really appreciate it because it helps us cover the cost of this production. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times, and they are delicious, fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals, and they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is 
actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Okay, Adam, no Edward Larkin on this episode because we watched too many things and we didn't watch the same things. So it yeah. just, just wouldn't make any sense. But... um. Why don't we talk to the folks about what we're going to do next? Because we now have a release date for the next Star Trek television show. That's right. Breaking news is that uh, Star Trek Lower Decks is coming to screens on the CBSL Access app on uh, August 6th. Thursday, August 6th is the first episode. We're uh, launching a new podcast to cover it called Star Trek Oops All Ensigns. <laughs> Are we? No. We're going to cover it on this show. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you're going to get recaps and laughs every Tuesday after the Lower Deck show drops, which means our first episode about Star Trek Lower Decks is going to be on Tuesday, August 11th. Yeah, can't wait. And uh, in the meantime, we're going to be on our regular every other week schedule. So one thing that happened this year... Uh, that has delighted both of us is that uh, our friend J.K. Woodward put us in another Star Trek comic book. This is a Star Trek Voyager-based mirror universe story, and we do get blown out into space in it. Does Tuvix live in in the Voyager mirror universe? <laughs> oh, man. I wonder if it's better to have Tuvix or evil Tuvok and evil Neelix. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but... Like, what is clear is that if you put us into a comic book, we're going to do a show about that comic book. It's only fair. Indeed. So uh, if uh, if you're headed to your local comic shop, uh, look for Star Trek Voyager Mirrors and Smoke. That's the name of the book. And uh, we will be back in a couple weeks to review ourselves. Finally. I'm apprehensive about how what those reviews will be, Ben. <laughs> I feel like they're going to be very bad. Yeah, Failing gonna... grades, I think. I have my own worst critic, so. <laughs> yeah. I'm a pretty bad critic of you too, Ben. Don't sell me short. I No, you're my second, my second worst. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. First our wives, then ourselves, then <laughs> each other. Right. That's the, that's the top three. And finally, Rob's, who we're going to leave it with from here. <laughs> Thanks, Rob's. The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is produced by Friend of DeSoto and YouTube sensation Adam Ragusia. The Greatest Discovery is a podcast that's made possible by the support of listeners like you. To make sure that we continue to make episodes, visit MaximumFun.org slash join and pledge your support. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of the Maximum Fun bonus content, including our bonus episodes. To keep up on everything Greatest Discovery and Greatest Gen related, make sure to follow the Twitter account, Greatest Trek. Thanks, we'll see you on the next episode.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.